This is the Colonel Rad Alert. Civil defense information will be broadcast at 640. West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hello. Y2K. How can we prepare? Stop a few of their machines and radios. Throw them into darkness for a few hours. We are fighting for our lives. My family must survive. Over five years, thousand gallons of gas, air filtration, water filtration. Coming at you from the frozen tundra that is East Central Alberta, Canada. Streaming live on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Twitch, Rumble, and Odyssey. Welcome back to the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. I am Toolman Tim. Today is April the lucky 13th, 2023, and this is episode 289 of the workshop podcast. So how is everyone out there? I hope you're having a great week. We had an impromptu or um, not an unscheduled, but an outside the norm schedule episode yesterday, which you may have noticed uh, the interview with John Bush hasn't gone live in the podcast feed yet. That's because that's going to be one of my throw them in the bank episodes for while I'm away. we have a few pre-recorded episodes. As you know, I'll be out traveling, gallivanting across the countryside down to Tennessee. So that will be one of them. So if you haven't caught it yet and you want to hear it ahead of time, Watch the live feed replay. If not, it'll be in the podcast feed in the next week or so. Hey, know your Joe and Martinson family. Good to have you so far. So Thursday, let's get the announcements out of the way, and then we will jump into what you guys all came for. Number one, it's Thursday. So we are live on the Prepper Broadcasting Network. Always great to be over there. If you don't have them in your feed, add them. Add PBN to your podcast feed. You'll get two of the same episode from the workshop every Thursday, but that's okay. You can just ignore the second one, but there's a ton of incredible content creators over there. So give them some love, go by, check out all my brothers and sisters in creation. <laughs> Number two, Thursday, do not forget our very first sponsor, FortressK9.com, or my brother, Joel Riles from the Protection Dog Podcast. This week, his episode at his podcast was training your mind through self-defense scenarios. Joel is a master at that, and I've told you this many, many times, but Joel is like a phoenix who has rose from the ashes. He's rebuilt his life in an incredible way. So go by, give him some, some support, because he showed his support to the workshop, which was great. Took a chance on us as our very first sponsor, and let him know how much you love him. All right, and finally, well, well let's see if we can do the math here, guys. April 27th, 14 days from today, holy cow, I will be at the Living Free in Tennessee Spring Workshop. That'll be the second time we've been to that, and I am excited. Can't wait to see all of my fellow friends, all of our community members, our tribe, our people. Uh, and last I checked, now, they may be sold out, but I'm going to do my due diligence and let you know there may still be a few tickets left. Uh, it's going to be April 27th to 29th. $500 for the whole weekend, that's meals, camping, and all the presentations included, or $475 you pay in Bitcoin, but uh, livingfreeintennessee.com is the place to go. Uh, cannot wait to see everybody there. It'd be great to see a couple of more workshop folks, but it's going to be a good time all around. Lots of drinking and karaoke and inspirational kicks to the ass. It'll be a good time. All right, finally, let's get today's tool out of the way. And it was actually yesterday's review video. And that is the Anchor 347 40,000 milliamp hour battery bank. Something about that is if you ever wonder why battery banks don't give out the milliamp hours that they say they're rated for, there's actually a really good reason for that. And I threw that in the video this week. But either way, this one was enough. 
to run my iPhone 13 Pro Max for seven straight days without needing to plug it in the wall. So there's that. Anyway, so guys, we are back and we are into the history of modern preparedness. I've probably shared with you a little bit about where this came from before, but it is. So I remember it was honestly just three or four days before we headed out last year on our vacation to um, down. Well, first we went to Daytona Beach and then we went to the LFTN workshop. It was a great time. But just before I went, I started doing a little bit of digging. I got into the Google Groups archives online and found where the origin of the term prepper came from. So for whatever reason, that just lit a fire under my ass or my brain or whatever you want to call it. And I decided that at some point when I finally had motivation, interest, and time enough, I was going to start putting together a history of modern preparedness. Because even though prepping itself isn't the new, uh, well, it's not it's not new, but it's not nearly as old as we might think, although it probably has its roots back as far as humanity's ever existed. But modern preparedness comes back as far as World War II-ish. And I thought, you know what? We need to lay this out because to me, there's nothing more important than not repeating the mistakes of the past, but also honoring Everybody who has um, kind of built the bridges, built the foundation for what we live by today. And to see that the people that came before us were also um, faulty. They had their failures as well. But the stuff that they taught was absolutely incredible. So let's dive in. Hey, I see Robin Holstein. Good to have you in here for a few minutes. Robin's been busy outdoors down there. The weather's been really good for her. So real quick, we'll slide through. The Roaring Twenties, that's where everything kind of started that when we go back and yeah. Now, if you want to rehear these episodes or if you haven't listened to the previous two episodes, they're in the podcast feed. They're worth watching. You can watch this one without it though. And you won't, uh, you won't miss out on anything, but I definitely recommend going back and filling yourself in. So first off, Roaring Twenties, that was kind of where everything, there was this huge optimism, right? Everybody knows. And then boom, we had the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression, which were two separate things that happened at the same time. Didn't know that. I learned something new every so often. Uh, so the entire continent was forced to go back to the old ways, which, you know, they considered the, the old the old ways in the 30s as well. And then right after that, we had a world war that brought home some incredibly hardened and broken individuals. And... Then on top of all that, you added atomic fear and anxiety that was just absolutely, anyway, everybody lived in a perpetual state of fear at that point. And it made it uh, just the anxiety that kind of hung over all of modern society like a cloud. Um, there was the establishment of the civil defense. We, I love talking about that. I don't know why I've always been so interested, but, you know, the the American civil defense organization that was kind of a bottom up, a little different than what you would look at FEMA as today, but they, you know, they encouraged people to build their own bomb shelters, the whole works. We know that. Cuban Missile Crisis, which basically put the United States at four minutes from atomic desolation. Um, Life Magazine put out some handy dandy magazines all about, hey, guess what? You too can build a fallout shelter. Interesting, right? Had a massive New York City. Hey, we got Ted McDonald in here tonight, the master of the memes. Always appreciate him. 
uh, hyperinflation in the 60s, a massive power outage that people treated like a party. So that was good. The 65 power outage in New York City was nowhere near as bad as the one in the 70s, but that's for another day. And then who are the influencers in the, 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 the very, very first godfather, grandfather, whatever you want to call it, Don Stevens and his wife, Mel, they wrote uh, on retreating really the very first term of what a prepper would be eventually called was a retreater. They coined that phrase. They started the modern retreater movement. And then as far as financial prepping goes, we had Harry Brown and his lectures on how to profit from the coming American dollar devaluation. So (laughs) there we go. About four minute recap on what we covered before. And with that, we're going to slide into the cool 1970s. Now, we're getting closer and closer to modern day. I... I I am probably going to have to go back and do a whole second episode on some of the stuff that I just never included in this episode. There's a ton. The 70s were a full, full decade. So first thing we're going to do, we're going to look at the news stories that shaped the psyche that was the modern person in the 1970s. Then we're going to scroll on through and we're going to talk a little bit about pop, pop culture, then the influential individuals that came beyond that. And the cool thing is, so the fifties were just kind of, we didn't really have any, I hate the word influencer, but we didn't really have any preparedness influencers in the fifties. It was people just getting used to the idea that uh, the atomic bomb could kind of drop and that sort of thing. But when the sixties come along, we had some of the very first people, Harry Brown and Mel Stevens or Don and Mel Stevens, like I said, that started teaching and building kind of a, a repository of prepping knowledge. So the people that come in the 70s really are just building on those patterns. And that's what I love about these decade to decade looks. I mean, so there's never an easy way to demarcate between when one trend ends and one trend begins. But picking the decades and the term that kind of all encompasses it is the easiest way to do it. So tonight, we're actually going to talk more about the back to land movement turns out they were referred to as back to landers. So we're going to talk about that as the 80s is more of the survivalism. Now there's a lot of survivalism in here. And like I said, it's hard to separate, but we're going to talk about all of it. Ted says we had popular mechanics. I love popular mechanics. We used to uh, have a subscription to that at the library I worked at and I always enjoyed it. All right. So first off, what was going on in the world in the 1970s? Anybody know anything about political mistrust? (laughs) Because first off, believe it or not, Vietnam was still going on. Vietnam lasted for almost half of the 70s. Well, three and a half years. It ended March 1973. So even though, you know, everybody looks at the 60s as kind of the, you know, the free love, the, the end of the Vietnam War, it really hung around for a few years after, which did no favors for anybody who were worried about the distrustfulness of the government. Let's put it that way. But that wasn't the biggest thing in the 70s when it came to government mistrust. There was um, a little scandal known as Watergate. Now, you know, I dug into Watergate a fair bit today because I'd always heard about it. If that happened today, I'm not sure anything would have came of it. I don't imagine um, a sitting president would have resigned over it. Maybe I'm Maybe I'm misrepresenting what happened, but, you know, it was just kind of some huh, espionage or subterfuge or whatever of, uh, what do you, um, 
Richard Nixon sent some people in to do some clandestine spying. It was interesting. Anyway, um, if, if you want to go down a fun rabbit hole someday, check out the story about how Jay Leno hid in the boardroom closet and took notes on what they were talking about. It kind of reminded me of that. So it was what it was. <laughs> Robert Holstein, Robin says, hippies invaded West Virginia in the 70s. A lot of them starved and headed back home after a couple of years. Some actually made it. It's really funny. That seemed to be any kind of rural area. So there was, in Nova Scotia, where I grew up, in the backwoods near Weymouth, there was, I think they called them an airship or something. One of those, anyway, it was one of those weird hippie style buildings that people moved there in the late 60s, early 70s, built a little commune and then abandoned it a few years later. And it was just one of those, I think it was a circular building. So I may have the name wrong for that, but there was one like that. There was one that was built more similar to a windmill, just a whole bunch of stuff. So yeah, that was, I, it's kind of neat when you talk to a lot of the rural areas, a lot of them have a story about, hey, you know, these 10 or 12 dirty hippies that uh, didn't shave their armpits and didn't have a shower, moved into the woods and decided they were going to make a go at it, right? So that that's what came about of this. And a big thing that forced it was Earthship. There we are. Thanks, Know Your Joe. I think I called an airship, didn't I? <laughs> that was the Hindenburg or something. All right. So we had Vietnam, we had the Watergate. This really was the death of trust in the public office. And, um, you know, in the 50s, it was very traditional. Everybody thought, yeah, you know what? We we kind of get along with the government. We know we have to vote one in, vote the other in. The 60s started it. In the 70s, complete faith broken down in the governmental uh, system. And we know that. So political mistrust. We had terrorism. You guys heard about the Olympic massacre in Munich, a two-day event where some Palestinian terrorists broke into the Olympic village, took, I believe it was eight student or um, athletes hostage, killed two immediately. Then the, I guess they wanted to end it quickly. So the military went in the next day and everybody died. A really bad situation. It was all over the news. It was well reported on. Most of it happened live. And that really got that terrorism and hijacking thing under, <laughs> under everybody's skin. The, the 70s was a decade of terrorism and hijacks. And then there was the Iran hostage crisis. There's a movie about that, a really good one. Basically, Iranian militants took the entire U.S. embassy hostage for a year and a half. Um, you know, eventually it all worked out for the most part. But again, you had American citizens, government employees being held hostage in a foreign country again. So you had terrorism on the mind of everybody. And then we cannot talk about the 70s without the oil embargo or the oil shortage. I always hear stories about it. Uh, obviously, it wasn't around, but being born in 81, I don't remember the oil shortage. <laughs> but basically, it was an oil embargo from OPEC. And that is the, you know, the group that decides how much oil is going to be sent around the world. And basically, they were pissed off at the United States and a bunch of other Western countries about the fact that they supported Israel in a war with Palestine. So what happened? Well, some really good prepping scenarios, some things that would have been um, a really good way to test your preps. Let's put it that way. So we had um, really high gas prices if it was available. We had complete shortages in some places, complete outages in others, and then rationing. First time the United States had had to ration since the 1940s in World War II. 
So that in, that enforced or influenced a whole bunch of subsidies for alternative energies, which we're going to talk about later. But people were uh, basically, from what I understand, I've heard stories again, Byron says his dad told him stories. From what I understand, um, they went by license plate numbers. So you could only show up to gas stations on certain days and you're only allowed to buy a certain amount. And even that was at a really high price. So can you imagine the, you know, the entire world since, you know, what the thirties had been built up around being able to move from one place to another via the highway system, get to and from work. And all of a sudden, you know, the lifeblood of that transit is at a shortage. And again, not to be that guy, but it was um, due to conflict in the Middle East and countries who were already terrorizing the United States. So again, that kind of reinforced it. But people were used to having fuel and all of a sudden, boom, it wasn't around. And then <laughs> pollution. Oh, we all heard a lot about pollution in the 80s and the ozone layer and everything else. But the 70s was where um, the concern for pollution started coming about. And that's where a lot of this back to the land movement came from. But uh, first off, in 1969, so just at the tail end of the 60s, going into the 70s, there was a massive oil spill off the coast in California, near Santa Barbara. Over 3 million gallons of crude oil spilled into the water, killing birds everywhere, polluting the coastlines. And that was a very public moment that people are like, holy shit, we need to take care of some things. So following that, there was three acts passed in the United States, the Clean Air, the Clean Water, and the Endangered Species Act. This all came about because it was this huge public concern for environmental well-being. And rightfully so, we should take care of the planet. We only have one. I have no problem with that. Uh, as humans, we can be dirty. And so now I don't love the fact that things were enforced via the government, but it is what it is. So Clean Air, Clean Water, Endangered Species Act. They were very worried about the loss of habitat for animals based on human activity. So there was that. There was a huge concern for air pollutants due to, uh, you know, nasty gas, nasty oils, and water pollutants, the waterways getting wrecked. So there you go. Uh, know Your Joe says, I remember long lines of gasoline, long wait, high prices, limited quantities. It's uh, something that happens in most places when there's a power outage and people need gasoline for their generators and didn't bother to stock some up ahead of time either. Just a really uh, shitty way to have to, you know, live hand to mouth on gasoline, right? And hello, Beth, Emily, good to have you. Said I remember the 70s very well. It was my childhood. And uh, yeah, I mean, I was an 80s baby, loved the 80s, but uh, you know, there was always something about the 70s that uh, I was nostalgic for a time I didn't uh, didn't get to hang out in. So there was that. So that was the mindset of the, uh, you know, kind of the news stories that were basing. We had distrust of the government. We had a worry or a concern for the environment. We had a fear of terrorism and we had a worldwide or a, an enforced gas shortage. And then we go into popular culture because I love talking about pop culture, but typically popular culture is the thing that reflects the mindset of the people and also influences the mindset of the people. So guess what was big at the box office? I know it's going to be hard to believe, but disaster films, not just disaster films, but disaster films that were caused by greed or 
human ineptness, like a whole, anyway. So the three that I picked to share with you, the towering in front, these are all three that I heard about from my dad constantly. <laughs> no, you're, I thought about Jaws. I was going to include Jaws, no, you're Joe, but I didn't in this instance. But these are three that my dad talked about all the time. So they obviously influenced him because he was a teenager in the 70s. Um, the Towering Inferno. So what was the uh, plot line behind the Towering Inferno? Brand new building was built. <laughs> the builders, the owners cut all kinds of corners. Basically, it was a, uh, a shitty for cash grab. <laughs> the night of the grand opening party, the building catches fire and traps everyone inside and they have to escape. Okay, now remember that theme. The next one that my dad always talked about and was also listed on the 70s list was Airport 77. A plane gets hijacked, crashed into the sea due to fog, and traps everyone underwater. Okay, now, number three, the Poseidon Adventure. Are you ready for this one? A ship is destined for the scrapyard. It's pushed way too hard by the new owner so they can save money on dismantling fees. It's hit by a massive wave and traps everybody inside, upside down in the water. So what do you have? You have technology that fails for some reason, typically involved through human evil and traps the good people inside and they need to escape. Crazy theme, right? Well, guess what? The Back to the Landers, they felt like they were trapped in a system that they couldn't escape due to no fault of their own, due to either government shittiness, <laughs> due to oil shortages, due to uh, modern consumerism, whatever it is, they felt trapped in the upside down boat or the burning building, and it was their job to escape. How crazy is that? So again, popular culture reflects the mindset, reflects the news that's going on. Uh, Robin Holstein says, my dad converted a beer keg into an extra gas can for our Dodge van to go to Virginia Beach around 1976. My dad always told me stories of that. Um, he said, you used to be able to go to the gas station and fill any container you could get your hands on with fuel. <laughs> he used to go down with a one gallon glass pickle jar and fill it full of gas and bring it back. So times there are changing. And then... What launched in 1970 as well? A little magazine. Uh, we love them or hate them today. Very influential. Anybody want to guess what magazine that would have influenced the Back to the Land movement that launched in 1970 for $1,500 by a husband and a wife from home? It was, uh, you know, I've read the magazine a ton. Uh, it's influenced home homesteaders and prepping for a lot of time. Um Beth Emily said, my parents took me to Poseidon Adventure for my 10th birthday. I've never been on a cruise. I absolutely believe you. <laughs> um, Jaws, saw that in theater, Know Your Joe, said, one of the most impacting movies of my life. It took decades before I would even step into the ocean and only just a bit above the ankles. <laughs> Damn, I, it's funny how fiction and stories have that power to do that, right? So whether whether the the pop culture is reflecting what people believe or is influencing what people believe. I, I think it's a bit of a chicken and an egg thing, right? So anyway, 1970 Mother Earth News launched. So there is no more specific magazine that would have impacted the back to lander movement than Mother Earth News. Absolutely. So <laughs> let's talk about the influential individuals. I like that. So 
I've had a lot of fun with this, guys. This has been, I, this is my passion project. I'm going to do more episodes on this. We're not anywhere near being done. But what I have found, I, I think my favorite part of doing the research for these episodes is the little bit of the gems that I find. So I found an incredible article from Kurt Saxon today, written in 1979 or 1980, called What is a Survivalist? It was on this really obscure, kind. Of, it was called Text Files. It looked like it has been around since the 90s, it had bright green text with a black background, hurt my eyes even to read it. So I copy and pasted it into a notepad. And I decided that when I'm gone uh, away for a bit, I'm going to read a couple of those articles as podcast episodes because I think they need to see the light of day. It'll be like um, <laughs> historical prepper audiobooks or something like that. Long, long forgotten articles that are just as pertinent today, but it also gives us kind of the insight into what these people were thinking. You know, these are <laughs> the giants whom shoulders we are climbing on as preppers today. So uh, the first one, Howard Ruff. So it seems like every generation has a, or every decade has a um, preparedness financial guru. You know, um, we could look at our buddy John Pugliano right now as, as one of those. And I really appreciate him. This gentleman, his name was Howard J. Ruff. If that doesn't sound like an old timey name. He was a financial advisor, a speaker. He became well-known in the 1970s. <laughs> um, so what he, and, and this is going to sound really, really familiar to the guys from the 1960s, right? Uh, his investment strategies were centered around times of economic uncertainty and inflation. Again, there's that I word. They worried about it in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s, and right up to the 2020s. That's always been a concern for all of us. Renegade says, prepper porn from the past. Too many peas. Past, yes. So Ruff provided practical advice on how to protect oneself financially from economic crisis and inflation. <laughs> he come up with a great name, which I loved for his newsletter. Now, if you guys haven't noticed, one of the biggest things that people in the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s did when they had a passion, when they wanted to share their knowledge with the world, was they started a newsletter. So Howard Ruff started a very influential newsletter called The Ruff Times, R-U-F-F -F Times. I just thought that that, that name made me smile. <laughs> First published it in 1975, he was very strong on investing in gold, silver, and tangible assets. Again, something we all talk about today, something that always is a hedge against inflation. Uh, he gained a large following among those who shared his concerns. Again, the people in the 70s. Remember, we talked about the retreaters in the 60s, the back to landers today. Now, what you're going to notice is there's a bit of a split in the 70s. So in the 60s, there was really just the retreaters. But going forward, it starts in the 70s and gets bigger in the 80s. There's a bit of a divide between homesteading and prepping, or in this case, back to the landers and survivalism. Now, as the decades go on, they get closer and further apart, and it's just kind of two, uh, two sides of the same coin. You go to like Self-Reliance Festival, you will still see people from both sides of the dichotomy, and that's where we meet. That's what I love. <laughs> we meet around the distrust of the government. We meet around, um, you know, concern for happenings in the world. 
We may, it, it may manifest itself differently in each of us, but it's, it's a really cool thing. So um, he's perhaps best well known for a book that he wrote called How to Prosper During the Coming Bad Years, published in 1979. It was a bestseller. Again, that doesn't sound like something that could have been written in 2020 or 2023. Again, somebody who's trying to help people be prepared for potential perilous scenarios. All right, stop with that, Tim. <laughs> um, so what are some of the things that he taught? He taught that economic turmoil is inevitable. I think we've all seen that. He And another thing that I love, every time I find someone who is influential in the prepper sphere, they're very much an individualist in the sense that they need, that they preach that each person needs to take responsibility for their own health, their own security, their own financial situation. And of course, Ruff said, every individual needs to take responsibility for their financial well-being. He also believed, get this, I know this is going to blow your mind, that people should not rely on the government or their employers to provide for them. Hmm, sounds like didn't like government and he was a big fan of being self-employed. Love it. Funny how the more things change, the more they stay the same. He advised his readers to reduce their debt, build up their savings as a way to protect themselves from instability. Again, great advice. He recommended tangible assets, gold and silver as a hedge against inflation. Something we've all heard Jack Spierko talk about for many, many years on the Survival Podcast. Chuck Peoples, how the hell are you, brother? Always good to see you in here. Um, what else? Practical advice on reducing household assets. Imagine that. Sounds like a Dave Ramsey thing. Uh, sorry, host, how to reduce household expenses, not assets. <laughs> you want to increase the assets, right? He emphasized self-sufficiency, practical skill, learning practical skills. So he wasn't just into finance. He was also into, hey, guess what? This is what, check this out, guys. I loved it. Uh, such as gardening and home repair as a way of reducing dependence on others. So, he was into being independent, but he was also into learning hard skills because that was a tangible asset to people as well. But what I really love, this was a throwaway line that I found about him. It said, Ruff always emphasized the need for a positive attitude and a willingness to take action in order to prosper during difficult times. How cool is that? A dude from the 1970s who was preaching, guess what? There's a really good chance that the finances are going to collapse. Whether they do, whether they don't, doesn't matter. But he said, you know what you need to do? You need to have a positive attitude if you're going to survive this. Love it. Love it. Uh, he wrote a few other books um, with titles, Famine and Survival in uh, America, and How to Prosper During the Coming Bad Years in the 21st Century. And finally, he wrote a book called Safeguarding Your Home in a Nuclear Attack. I thought that was crazy. So... This is where, so Haas asks, was canning big back then? From what I understand, it became big in the back to the land movement again in the 70s. So we're actually, I'm actually going to probably go back and do an entire episode strictly on the back to the land movement. Um, I didn't get into the influential people so much in the back to the land movement tonight in my notes, but yes, canning was uh, alternative energies, alternative heating sources, alternative building supplies. We will talk about that a bit, but yeah, these were all things that were uh, becoming really big. They were maybe not lost arts, but forgotten for a decade or so. You know, people come out of the, probably for a couple decades, they come out of the forties, out of the world wars. And they're like, you know what? 
we don't need to do that anymore. Let's uh, let's just survive on the supply chain and not worry about canning our own food. So there was that. So first guy. So that was that covers Mr. Howard Ruff, Howard J. Ruff. I liked him. Uh, I'm going to have to pick up his book. I'm always looking for uh, interesting specimens of prepper history. I've picked up a bunch since last I guess it's been about two months since I did an episode in this. I, I almost need a, about a month to recover. <laughs> this is, uh, there, I, I love doing these episodes, but there's um, a ton of research goes into them and, and that's cool. So we got rough out of the way. Now, this may be one of the first people you guys, uh, some people you've heard of before, but anyone out there heard of Mel Tappan? Uh, he wrote a very, very famous book called Mel Tappan on guns. Didn't live very long though. Um, so he, he was actually, which is kind of cool. This is the first name on any of these episodes I've done that was someone that I read about, studied about, and learned from, not personally, but through readings. I remember, so it would have been 2008, 2009. I think we just got, um, what they call it, uh, cable or satellite, wireless internet is what they called it. We were living out in the woods and I was really getting into learning about prepping and, and all of that. And one night I was on a forum somewhere and I came across this article talking about Mel Tappan and it was Mel Tappan on guns, or it was an article about that survival guns, I think is what it was called. So I downloaded it and went on down a rabbit hole and read a shit ton of his stuff, a bunch of articles that he wrote for, I think it was guns and ammo. I'm not sure, but just some of the best firearms articles I'd ever read. And, uh, yes, uh, yeah, there it is. Martinson family says survival guns. He was the first to speak on that topic. Yeah, just an incredible dude. And you're going to find out how incredible he was here too, because uh, he had some uh, challenges that he had to fight in his life. Uh, I don't know if I included it all, but so yeah, I dove into his stuff and I really liked it. So Mel Tappan, uh, he was a well-known survivalist, but he didn't just write about guns. He wrote about preparedness, self-sufficiency, and survivalism. Sounds like he'd fit right in with our community. Hey, the thing is, the dude, he died at 47 in 1980. He was really active in the survival movement in the 70s. Um, he's most, well, I shouldn't say best known, but his, I guess his biggest book or one of his most well-known books was Survival Guns, A Guide to the Selection, Modification, and Use of Firearms and Other Weapons. That's kind of what got him on the radar of a lot of um well, we can call them preppers, even though they didn't call themselves preppers then, uh, but it's considered a classic today. Um, he wrote Survival Guns. He wrote a bunch of other books on survivalism and self-reliance, including Tappan on Survival. That's his last name. And this one's kind of strange, but Tappan's Handbook of Healing Massage Techniques. <laughs> so anyway, as an influential survivalist in the 70s, anybody want to take a guess what he did? I won't make you think or, or, or hold out too long. He started the newsletter. I know again, right? Everybody started newsletters. That's our third right now. And we're going to have a fourth one tonight. So he, him and his wife uh, started what was called the personal survival newsletter in 1977. It only ran five years, but again, it was like this huge collection of, or maybe a, I've said treasure trove a couple times already tonight, but it was just this incredible collection of, survival techniques, survival stories, tons of articles on guns, all of that. And he just, you know, this went out and some of the early um, issues, there was very few ever printed or sent out, but it provided practical advice 
on all kinds of stuff, food, food storage, preservation, water purification, alternative energy sources, and self-defense. Again, he was a man of the 70s, so those were the things that mattered to other people, and those were the things that mattered to him. Um, He really uh, pressed the need to develop a self-reliant mindset, acquiring practical skills for emergency situations. I, uh, you know, I think about um, tactical response and their mindset and what was built on there. And a lot of it, you can see some of the things that Mel Tappan talked about and influenced some of, you know, I'm sure general, you know, guys like James Yeager and some of the other guys who were or are influencers and people who are teaching survival gun and fighting gun and that sort of thing. Um, so he wrote for a ton of gun magazines, uh, Soldier of Fortune, Backwoods Home, and a magazine called, uh, oh, so Haas, funny you'd mention that. So, uh, and a magazine called Survive Magazine. Uh, we're going to talk about that in a minute because I couldn't find much online. So Haas says, I wonder if you can find the newsletters online. So, okay, yes, most of them are in an electronic format, but a lot of them were, um, condensed into a book called, um, Tappan, is it, uh, Tappan on survival and Tappan on guns. So I ordered, uh, the original, uh, when I do this research, I'm always looking, I found it on eBay for like 25 bucks. I think it was the original print copy of Tappan on survival. So that's on its way. I will definitely fill you in on some of the stuff that's in it. But yes, if, if you search, I think there's like four PDF uh, folders that you can find. I'll see if I can find links for them. But uh, one of his terms that I loved, he was a proponent of what he called practical survivalism. Seems like a precursor to modern survivalism, if you ask me. Uh, He emphasized the importance of being self-sufficient. He prepared, one of his big things was preparing for emergencies without going to extremes. He also talked a lot about not becoming paranoid. Again, I love this. You had uh, Ruff talking about keeping a positive attitude. And you had Mel Tappan saying, there's no need to go to extremes and there's no need to get paranoid. Uh, These are practically or practical preparedness people. I love it. He believed that individuals should be able to provide for their basic needs. I know, mind-blowing, right? Food, water, shelter, and defense in case of a disaster or societal collapse. I think that's kind of cool. Also very practical. The type of thing that people would teach today. We're going to start seeing a pattern here, aren't we? (laughs) Uh, So I found a ton of different magazines he wrote for, but the one that seemed uh, the most interesting to me was a magazine called Survive Magazine. Now, I couldn't find much about it. I typed it into chat GPT or whatever to see what I could find. It told me that it was printed in the 70s and the 80s. I did some searches for some sales on eBay I did find a few magazine covers that I could, that looked like a really interesting magazine, but I couldn't find it on Google Books, which usually has an archive of all old magazines. So if anybody's ever seen a magazine called Survive out of the 70s or 80s, or maybe knows where I could find some, I'd love to know. Because it focused on survivalism, self-reliance, things that related to that. Um, Again, it was kind of a... So what, what did you have in the 70s and 60s? Newsletters and magazines. This one talked about wilderness survival skills, self-defense, food storage, preservations, and DIY projects for self-sufficiency. And then it, they also did a breakdown of current news 
I thought that was kind of cool. Practical advice, no nonsense approach. Um, and the cool thing was they had tons of neat writers, including Mel Tappen, but also um, survivalists and preppers, Kurt Saxon, whom we're going to hear about later on today, Jeff Cooper, whom we're going to hear about later on today, and then a gentleman named Ragnar Benson. That's one person I didn't research tonight. So, like I said, if anybody knows anything about that, I would love to hear, especially if you're listening to this on um, the audio, not the live. Get back to me. I'd love to hear. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Garden Girl says, sounds like a podcast I listen to called Practically Prepping for Everyday People. I love that. Always looking for good good things to listen to. And I, I love the concept of being practically prepared. So the next one, uh, another firearms expert in the 70s. Jeff Cooper. Um, oh, you know what? I got to slide back right quick. A couple other things about Mel Tappen that I didn't mention. He was born with a tumor on his spine. He became super well-known as the survival gun guy. He was a prepper. Him and his wife put together this incredible newsletter. His entire life, he lived with a tumor on his spine that got worse and worse. He originally walked in crutches and then eventually did all of this from a wheelchair and then passed away at about 47 years old. So it was sad, but he never let that disability get in his way. And I had to share that because, again, what's the number one rule of survival is to stay alive, and um, you have to overcome whatever you're dealing with. So uh, from there, Jeff Cooper, uh, he passed away in 06. Uh, He lived uh, to be 74 years old, another gun expert. Uh, He was an expert in firearms training, combat, um, and again, Here we go. You're going to love this. But he had a philosophy of self-reliance and individual responsibility. There's a lot of libertarian and anarchist thoughts um, in all of this. And it's hard in my mind, and maybe it's because, you know, I started out as libertarian and became an anarchist. It's really hard to separate the philosophy of, um, you know, voluntarism or anarchy and preparedness. Because, um, I mean, preparedness is at its core, you know, taking responsibility, personal responsibility for absolutely everything. So I don't know. Just just a thought out loud there, guys. Uh, Letty Lou says, I just learned about Jeff Cooper recently, never heard of him, and now he's mentioned twice in a few days. If I can do nothing else with this series but bring some of these um, modern pillars or um, the foundation lists of modern prepping, to the forefront so we can learn about them. I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to keep reading articles to you from them because I think they should not be forgotten um, for the good and for the bad. So uh, Jeff Cooper, he had a saying, this is great. If you go to his website, so like I said, he's been gone for uh, 17 years now. Now, if you guys have heard of Gunsight Academy, he is the original founder of that. And on there, there's a quote. If you go to their website, (laughs) I love it. It says, owning a pant, Owning a piano does not make one a pianist any more than owning a handgun makes one a good shooter. You could insert anything there. But if that doesn't talk about the importance of skills over supplies, I don't know what does. That's a great line. And that is the philosophy that I hope I teach every single day if I can. So he was a decorated Marine veteran, served in World War II and the Korean War, So he came back to modern society or, you know, North America with a ton of uh, combat experience. Um, He became a world-renowned firearm instructor. Like I said, he founded the Gunsight Academy, uh, which was in Arizona. 
and uh, says he taught thousands of students every single year there. Um, he was strongly in favor of self-reliance. He believed in the importance of individual responsibility and preparedness. Again, just a, a and so what's kind of cool or kind of interesting is the people that were teaching in the 70s, they were very individualistic, a little bit militant, at least in their background experience. And this really uh, pushes the theme when we go to the 80s of that survivalist mentality. So this is this is what built foundation for what came after. Uh, he had what he called a frontier mentality. And again, self-reliance, independence, and he included self-defense in that as well. Excuse me, guys. He believed... Sorry, guys. <laughs> One of those nights. He believed that individuals should be prepared to defend themselves and their families against any threat. And what I loved about it, he saw firearms as an essential tool for achieving that goal. Notice how he called it a tool and not a weapon, because that's exactly what it is. Um, he strove to um, make sure his students had mental preparedness and was very uh, a big proponent of proper situational awareness. Again, great things that we talk about today. Um, he believed being mentally prepared and aware of one's surroundings could help individuals avoid dangerous situations and respond effectively to emergencies. Again, um, when I went to Tactical Response, we got to watch a video of James Jagger talking, and he talks about, I don't remember the exact words, but, um, you know, you win every fight that, you, uh, that you're not involved in, right? And that's what this, that's what Cooper talked about, being mentally prepared, situationally aware, and avoiding dangerous situations. Just smart, everyday advice. Uh, he published a book in 72 called Principles of Self-Defense. It's a classic, apparently, that lots of people recommend and reference when they're talking or teaching firearms. He wrote The Art of the Rifle, published in 97. The book is a comprehensive guide to rifle shooting and marksmanship, uh, so a little more technical. And then um, this is the one that I'd like to pick up. It's called To Ride, Shoot Straight, and Speak the Truth. This was put out in 84, and this is a collection of his essays on various topics, firearm, shooting, and self-defense. So again, it was it's very similar to all the other books that come out in the 60s and 70s that were collections of articles or collections of stories or essays, newsletters, that sort of thing. Uh, and then uh, let, let's move on to probably the biggest influencer. Oh, don't use that word, Tim. Make him sound like he posted pictures on Instagram like I do or something. Now, so the... The biggest, um, you know, thought, <laughs> the biggest teacher on preparedness from the 70s and the 80s, and he, he actually continued up until the 2010s, I believe. Hey, right on. Let's see here. Martinson said, Cooper discussed the, the I think, is that Scout or Scout rifle concept and the fact that no fighting pistol is better than the, the 1911 45 auto. I, yeah, just... I mean, he was a guy that knew his stuff and every gun guy I've ever met has very strong opinions about certain things. But I mean, the fact that his shooting academy is still open, something like 45 or 50 years after it was founded, is a testament to what he taught for sure. So the last one, I believe he's the last individual we're going to talk about tonight, is Kurt Saxon. Now, I'm guessing some of you out there have heard of Kurt Saxon before, but... um. He, again, 
put out a newsletter. We're going to talk about that. So he was born in 32 in California. Um, he grew up during the Great Depression and World War II. So what got him interested or uh, involved in the preparedness and survival movement was he grew up during the Great Depression, World War II, and then uh, he was absolutely poor as a kid. So all of that kind of leaned in on him. And then, you know, as a young adult, he was coming up in the atomic age. So all of that with that dread led him toward, I need to do something. I need to teach. And it said, as he became older, he got really concerned about the threat of either nuclear war or societal collapse. Again, things that a lot of us worry about. And just because it didn't happen in the 70s doesn't mean it can't happen. And hopefully it never does. But again, better to be prepared and it not happen, right? Here we go. He believed that individuals needed to prepare to survive on their own in the event of a crisis. There's that individual mindset again, but individual responsibility as well. Um, he was very, very much into practical skills, but also mental preparedness. So there, there's a theme that we didn't see in the 60s much, but where it really shines through in the 70s was, um, you know, situational awareness, but also grit. You know, one of the um, one of the 12 pillars of preparedness is, you know, uh, mental toughness, right? So in the 60s, uh, this is really cool. So we didn't talk about this because he didn't really get well known until the 70s, but he wrote a bunch of booklets. I picture him standing on a corner handing out like gospel tracts or something. And they were called The Poor Man's James Bond. And what they were was almost a precursor to the anarchist cookbook. So you can imagine some of the stuff that was in those poor man James Bond pamphlets. I would, And they have been collected. There's four collected books of all the pamphlets he put out. I'd love to get my hands on them. I've seen a couple used for like 25 bucks a piece online. So they're out there. Um, but they, they covered a ton of stuff. And mostly around survival, self-sufficiency, and they became kind of the thing that were handed amongst survivalists and people who were influential in the prepper sphere, which was cool. But that really wasn't what got him really well known. In the 70s, the mid-70s, he started putting out uh, what was called the Survivor Newsletter. Now, I managed to get a hold of, I should have brought them down tonight, guys, I apologize. I'll do a, like a uh, one minute. I, I'll do a video on them, but they're collected editions. I ended up buying four of them in, uh, it was, uh, it was in Edmonton. I found them online at a, a kind of an antique bookstore and it's collected editions of full newsletters that he had. So, I mean, each book is about 400 pages. The stuff in it is just, I mean, if that's all you ever had, it would be enough. The book gave me chills when I put my hands on it. It felt like finding some sort of artifact from a time gone by, but it was really cool. So, uh, and there's tons of stuff in there. Uh, survival skills, self-defense, homesteading, firearms. Um, and it had a cult following. This is what really built him amongst uh, what, what would be known as his peers. Uh, now, he was also known for uh, unconventional advice, i.e. Uh, making self-defense items with things you found around home and, um, an irreverent tone. That's what, uh, somebody online described him as. In other words, and it only got worse as he got older. So in my research, I found a whole YouTube channel full of radio shows that he recorded back in the, I think the eighties or the nineties. 
I haven't had a chance to listen to them yet, but I've added them to one of my queues, so I'm excited to listen to them. But a lot of what I found on the forums was that as he got older, uh, his mind started going a bit, and he didn't have, uh, he, he just got a little bit eccentric. But that does not negate the fact that he was, you know, a pillar or a foundational member of prepping, uh, just because, you know, you don't have to, somebody can teach you something really good and not necessarily be a good person in other areas, right? So, um, he had some interesting inventions. If, uh, uh, Josh, the renegade butcher still on here, I think he'll appreciate them. But, uh, this, this guy, well, the first one was nothing serious. It was a portable solar panel system for the seventies. That was a big deal, but he also built his own flamethrower. So, uh, you know, he was a precursor to Elon Musk, I guess. <laughs> now he had, like I said, a ton of interesting information, a lot. I, I, I've read through a lot of his stuff and I really enjoy it. And the first article that I read for one of these uh, backup episodes is going to be one of his, but I would be, uh, yeah, you're right, Martinson. I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Uh, they said, uh, we all get a little eccentric in age. We do. I think it's because we have been, been so focused on whatever has influenced us in our life that it's hard to see anything outside of that. But, ah, Renegade is here. Flamethrower. He, he come up with uh, a little flame meme for us or, uh, emoji. So, uh, like I said, I would be a little remiss if I didn't talk about, um, the good and the bad for, for Kurt Saxon. So he was an interesting dude. Uh, he was linked to some, what the media would call far right organizations. Uh, he did work with the Aryan nations and the national Alliance and his writings had been criticized at times for containing racist or anti-Semitic content. He denied vehemently that he was not a white supremacist, although in the article that I read to you guys, there is one line that I read it out loud and I had to stop recording after um, about 30 seconds. I was like, did he just say that? Like, it's not, you know, anyway, I'd like, I preface it, I talk about it, but I think it's important to share this stuff uncensored so that people can see the person for whom they are. That's all. So there we are. So anyway. Again, whether he was or wasn't, the media accused him of being a white supremacist. Big friggin' surprise, right? Number two, he was arrested in 1961 for the possession of a pipe bomb, which isn't that surprising considering he put out pamphlets called A Poor Man's James Bond uh, that was basically a smaller version of the Anarchist Cookbook, yeah, right? Um, his writings, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, I think this is interesting, but his writings had instructions on how to make explosives and other homemade weapons. Um, he always said that his teachings were for self-defense and not violence, but he did advocate violent resistance if it were needed. And so that opened him up to a lot of criticism and controversy. Do with that as you will. But people love to tear apart his poor man, James Bond, because they said, hey, it has dangerous and illegal advice in it, right? <sighs> yeah. So anyway. Saxon, 100% his entire life, defended his writings and said they were necessary for survival and self-defense. So, again, I wanted to balance out the good with the bad and just share what was known about this guy because he had some great teachings, but there's going to be somebody out there who says, <laughs> yeah, but he wasn't a good dude. Well, you know what? I just want you to be aware of what was said about him. So, from there something else that's really cool. 
I did a lot of digging on this, guys. This is what I was really excited about in the 60s episode that I talked about. He actually launched the first BBS, the first bulletin board system for survival. It eventually became what was known as the Survival Forum. I'm not really sure when it was launched, just that it was launched in, some sources said around 1980, some said middle 70s. I think late 70s is probably about where it was launched. It stayed online until 2007. It's actually pretty cool. So uh, I have a few resources I use for researching this stuff. And one of my favorite is the Internet Archive or what's known as the Wayback Wayback Machine. And you can find, you know, if they took pictures of the websites, it's there. And I found a screenshot of the forum in 2007. And you're able to peruse the entire forum. It's really, really cool. So anyway, he was the, the very first guy in survival to go online with it. At least that's the best I can see or the best I can find. We're going to talk about that a ton more in the eighties because I've got some real hard, um, proof or evidence or whatever you want to call it. And, uh, I would, yeah. So anyway, um, we're going to talk a lot about that. I, I, I don't know how else to, to geek out about this, but it's history it's nostalgia and it's prepping. So when, and technology. So when we get into the eighties, I'm going to be like a little kid in a candy store, but so that's where it started. And then it eventually, like I said, it turned into the survival forum, which ended up getting hacked by some sort of group. And it got shut down in 2007. Uh, It has some spiritual successors, but there was what it was. That's really cool. Garden girl just said, I just found a copy of poor man's James Bond book on my local Facebook marketplace. That kind of, it's so neat, especially if people either don't know what they have or don't recognize it for what it is. Sometimes you can get a pretty good deal on it. But uh, so uh, he was um, a very interesting guy that I'm going to do. I'll probably do an entire episode on him. And at some point, if I ever write a book on the history of prepping, uh, he'll definitely have a big chapter chapter in it. But so we go from the 60s with the retreater movement and the retreater movement um, was both. It was the, probably the last movement, or I wouldn't say the last, but it was kind of like, um, you know, tags freesteading. It, it included both prepping and homesteading, right? All together, which is cool. And a lot of prepping does. There's a lot of overlap, but you get into the seventies and then you have the, the passive, um, quote unquote hippies who are going the back to land movement. They're like, Hey, let's move into the woods. Let's grow a garden and let's just stay away from the man. Yo, you know, they're the, the hippies that grew up and went out into the woods. Or you had the survivalists who were, uh, let's just say not passive, more defensive, more militant. And they kind of, so there were, this is where we really get this uh, fork in the road in the history of prepping. It's the first time. And um, they both sprung out of the retreater movement, which is really cool. And if you listen to that article I read from Kurt Saxon, he talks uh, at length about the retreater movement and how he felt the need to change it into survivalism. It's really cool because he he claims to have coined the term survivalist in, I think, 1976. So anyway, the back to the land movement in the 70s, uh, it was kind of the, they call it a countercultural movement. And it was, but it was kind of like, you know, the the free love hippies when they grew up a little bit. They're like, well, we got to have families. I guess we need to have a house. We need to feed our kids. So let's go do it in the woods. <laughs> so that's what happened. Um, but it was cool because 
These back to landers, as they were called, they wanted to live a simple life, a self-sufficient life. They wanted to live, uh, one of the big movements was get the hell out of the cities, get the hell out of the suburban areas and move into the rural areas. Again, a tenant of both retreating and a tenant of modern, modern preparedness, if there ever was one. Um, and again, it grew out of the, the free love, down with a man, hippie generation of the late 60s. And again, it sprung out of social unrest, political upheaval, rejection of mainstream values, all of that. They're like, we're done with this. You know, our whatever it was our president did doesn't, you know, frig him, we're going out in the woods and living, right? And again, there was this huge concern over environmental impact of hum humans, both through industrialization and urbanization. So again, we want to get back to nature. We want to embrace it. We want to live a more simple lifestyle. So we're not killing mother earth or whatever you want to talk about. But here's where there's some overlap again. They wanted autonomy. They wanted personal autonomy from societal constraints. And that's what I love about anarchism. And I don't mean anarchism like a James Bond villain. I mean, anarchism like free choice. Because it respects people who want greater autonomy and freedom from social constraints, even if some people might not think it does, right? So they embraced a whole bunch of alternative lifestyles, uh, things that we wouldn't consider alternative today, but crazy, crazy concepts like, holy shit, you ready for this? Organic farming. I know that blows me away. Uh, communal living. Again, that's probably something that most modern anarchists would think, oh, that sounds a lot like communism or socialism, but that's enough. Natural medicine, again, holy, yeah. Renewable energy. These were all groundbreaking concepts in the 70s, right? Uh, they wanted self-reliant, self-sufficient, sustainable communities that were as free from mainstream society as possible. Also, 100% government free. <laughs> uh, also, what was really cool in the Back to the Land movement was it was spurred on by a DIY or do-it-yourself ethic. Everything in there was, hey, let's learn how to do this. Again, the prepper ethic. How do we do this ourselves? How do we <laughs> how do we build an earthship? How, how do we build, um, you know, straw bale homes? How, how do we harness the power of the sun? All of that. Um, they had a huge focus on energy conservation, which was really cool. Passive solar. Uh, this was the movement where they really started super insulating houses. Um, they built their own solar panels, which I think would be really cool to learn how to do. They were big into biomass heat. Sounds like, uh, you know, some interesting people we know today. Wind, hydroelectric power. Again, we forget that all this stuff had a resurgence in the 70s before it started coming back again in the late 90s, right? Now, here's another crazy idea that uh, we never really talked about tonight. And everybody said, oh, permaculture. This was where um, a rise in the concept and understanding of what permaculture actually is came out in the 70s. They were big into alternative building methods, straw bale buildings, and all kinds of others. Um, they really just wanted to step outside of society and leave everyone else alone and be left alone. And this is the cool thing. The back to the landers, the back to the land movement really paved the way for what we would call modern homesteading 
and the sustainable living movement. Um, and they're both huge today, probably bigger than they ever have been. But that all came out of the 70s. And the 70s was a busy, busy decade for prepping. You notice how there was one thing we didn't really talk about a lot tonight, and that was the nuclear threat. So it wasn't that people weren't scared about things, but they were um, the peak of the nuclear and atomic fear of the 60s was um, had passed. It, it didn't mean that it wasn't over because there was still a lot going on. You know, there was uh, the Three Mile Island near meltdown. There was uh, constant um, jockeying back and forth between the U.S. and Russia on denuclearization and that kind of stuff. But when it came down to it, um, the worst of the nuclear fear either had passed or people had learned to live with it. So it was, hey, kill it and grill it. Good to have you from Nebraska. From Nebraska. Know your Joe says the fear is back. The fear is back if we let it be back. Again, it only has power over us if we allow it. What's old is new again. And all of these people in the 70s is like, hey, we have to learn to live with the threat. So let's worry about other stuff like, you know, oil shortages or, um, you know, the environment being destroyed, anything, uh, government, you know, government mal malfeasance or misdoing, whatever, that the worst of it was, well, let's just step away from society. We don't need to worry about it. And that's what they did. So you had, on the hippie side, you had communes. And on the survival side, you had compounds. And there really wasn't that big of a difference when it came down to it. And so going into the 80s, uh, there's a less, um, there's less interest in the quote unquote back to the land hippie movement. And there's a lot more uh, into the militia um, compound kind of mentality, the survivalists who want to create their own community behind gated walls, all of that. And unfortunately that influences some people who uh, maybe weren't real good individuals at times. But besides that, they influenced what is modern prepping today. And so in the next episode, we're going to dive into the 80s. And I'm excited about that because we're going to get to take a look at the decade that, well, the first decade that I lived in. So that'll be interesting. We'll get to look at what really made a survivalist in the 80s. We'll get to look at some people who are still alive today for a change, which is cool because what really sucks is that all of these influencers from the previous generations have passed on and their stuff is out there, but boy, it would have been great to sit down with them, have a conversation, interview them and allow them to share their story. To me, that's what would have been awesome. I would have loved to do that, but we'll get into it. Um, actually, John, uh, oh, the, the guy that wrote Patriots there, uh, Wesley Rawls or whatever, he's listed in a lot of the 80s articles on influencers in prepping. He, he was one of the early adopters of the bulletin board systems, online forums, that sort of thing. So he kind of takes the next step. And there, there's a ton of interesting people there we'll, we'll get into, but I'm, I'm excited. I love this journey. I'll need a break for a bit and we'll come back to this. Um, yeah, probably in, probably in the summer sometime, I'm guessing probably in June sometime after uh, both Living Free in Tennessee and the Thrivalist Fair, which is going to be great. And uh, we'll keep putting out high quality content for you all summer, guys. But I love these. I love these episodes. This is going to turn into something huge someday. I don't even know exactly what it's going to be, whether it's a book or 
I don't know. I don't know. Maybe a, maybe a, an audio presentation even bigger than this, but it's a lot of fun to go back and dig. I'm going to keep sharing with you all the little treasure, treasure troves that I find the little, little pieces everywhere that are just gold. So with that guys, I don't know where my voice went tonight, but about halfway through it just sort of said, Hey, guess what? Um, I'm not going to be there as much as it should be, but eh, you know what? We just prep on. Right. So with that guys, um, we got, what do we got coming up this week? We got basically this week up until Sunday, and then um, that'll be the last podcast that I do from home. There'll be a couple of pre-recordings. There'll be no uh, rewinds or re-recordings of old stuff. It'll all still be new content coming out for you. Some of it will be shorter, but there'll still be lots of stuff in your feed while I'm gone. We'll also be doing some live streams from the road, so there'll be legitimate ramblings from the road. They should be a lot of fun. I always appreciate it. And um, yeah, from there, guys, I always appreciate you. I I love this. This is a labor of love. I love putting them together. I put a ton of work into these uh, history episodes. And yeah, anyway, it is what it is. So thank you guys. As always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. <laughs>